You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Okay, the Texas State Legislature in April of this year, let's pause there. Because you know this isn't going to be good, right? In the long history of sentences, no sentence that's ever started with the Texas State Legislature ever ended well. The Texas State Legislature legalized weed today. The Texas State Legislature sued the Trump administration to block the construction of the border. The Texas State Legislature gave you an awesome blowjob. No, that's never how it goes. When someone says the Texas State Legislature... We all know to brace ourselves for whatever bad news is coming next. Anyway, in April of this year, the Texas state legislature did not give you an awesome blowjob. The Texas state legislature cut millions of dollars from clean air and water programs and redirected those funds to the state's quote-unquote crisis pregnancy centers. They want every pregnancy carried to term in Texas, which is why they're directing state funds to CPCs or crisis pregnancy centers, but they want every child born in Texas to breathe dirty air and drink dirty water because they care only about fetal life. Anyway, in 2006, according to Narrow, Texas was spending $5 million per year on crisis pregnancy centers. Today, Texas is spending $20 million a year on them. Now, if you don't know what a crisis pregnancy center is, Caitlin Bancroft's piece at Huffington Post, what I learned undercover at a crisis pregnancy center, is a good primer, or is it primer? Anyway, quoting from Bancroft's piece, CPCs use a variety of tactics to lure women into their buildings. They offer free pregnancy testing, are known to list themselves under abortion in online directories and search results, and may use misleading names with the hope that women will confuse them for legitimate healthcare providers. Once inside, women are treated to a carefully crafted program of manipulation designed to dissuade them from choosing abortion, birth control, and if they're not married, sex. CPCs are often disguised as medical facilities, the Texas Observer reports. Investigations have found that CPCs provide scientifically inaccurate information to pregnant women, the Texas Observer reports, including claims that having an abortion would increase risk of breast cancer, infertility, and psychological trauma, statements that have been debunked by the Texas Medical Association. All right, so once a woman enters a CPC, a woman who has been led to believe she will be able to access a full range of reproductive health care options, including abortion, the lies and the slut-shaming and the Jesus-freaking begin. Bancroft, she pretended to be pregnant when she visited CPCs in Virginia, and she was told that abortion would scar her for life, that condoms are porous and don't protect women from pregnancy or sexually transmitted infections, and that IUDs kill women. All lies, lies that came packed in 50 shades of slut-shaming. She was asked about her number of sex partners, and what her parents would think if they knew she was having sex before marriage and thinking about abortion. Now, Texas, which defunded Planned Parenthood in 2011 and saw their sexually transmitted infection rates and rates of unplanned pregnancies skyrocket, and for the slow out there, unplanned pregnancies are the pregnancies likeliest to result in abortion. Texas also saw their maternal death rates go through the roof after they defunded Planned Parenthood in 2011. Texas has more CPCs than legitimate family planning and women's health clinics. But hey, blue state people, blue state people like me, let's not get smug. I live in one of the bluest of the blue states, Washington Dem governor to Dem U.S. senators. 
We got gay marriage before you did, along with light rail and legal weed. And we've got almost as many crisis pregnancy centers here as legit women's health clinics. Now, most people aren't aware of the existence of CPCs. That's They count on that. CPCs count on most people, including most women, not being aware of their existence. They fly under the radar even as they rake in state funding, and the damage they do is incredible. Telling scared, uninformed, often poor women, CPCs prey on the poor particularly, telling these women they shouldn't bother using condoms or that IUDs are dangerous and pushing these women to have more children than they can possibly care for. Remember, folks, most women who are seeking abortions already have one or more children at home, this harms women. It can actually kill women. Women who see women's health care provider on the side of a building, women who Google abortion and the first returns are for CPCs, wind up being abused and lied to and put at risk by people who are dressing up like doctors but aren't and work in places that look like medical clinics but aren't. To raise awareness of CPCs, the harm they do, the lies they tell, the public funds that are wasted on them, Groups working to protect women's health care, groups working to protect women, period, are staging a week of action to expose CPCs. A large coalition calling itself the Reproductive Rights Resistance Squad, Lady Parts Justice, NARAL, Pro-Choice America, Shout Your Abortion, and more. They're staging protests online and off all across the country this week. The week of action started yesterday, July 17th, and goes through July 26th. Go to exposefakeclinics.com or search the hashtag exposefakeclinics on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram to find out what's going on in your community and what you can do to expose these fake and very dangerous clinics and expose the lying liars behind them and the lying politicians who fund them. There are more than 4,000 CPCs all across the United States compared to just 780 abortion care providers, according to Merrill. And like I said, CPCs aren't just a problem in red states. They're in blue states, too. So wherever you are, join this resistance. ExposeFakeClinics.com. All right, coming up on today's show, lots of your cute bunches of my A. Amanda Marcotte from Salon, where she writes about politics and feminism, joins us to talk about Game of Thrones. And on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at SavageLovecast.com. Dot com, which is longer and no ads, we've got a doctor in to take a deep dive, a deep root around in vaginal fisting. That's on the Magnum. And a quick programming note about an upcoming show. Cecile Richards, head of Planned Parenthood, is going to join us to talk about Planned Parenthood. And then we're going to talk with a physician from Planned Parenthood and field a bunch of your health-related questions. So if you have a health question that you want one of Planned Parenthood's top docs to tackle for you, give us a call, 206-302-2064, and record it for us, and we may answer it on the Planned Parenthood show. All right, here we go. Today's show is starting now. Hi, Dan. Um, I am a 20-something lesbian in the Midwest, and my girlfriend and I are exploring more like dom-sub things, and she wants me to tell her to shut up. And I'm having a hard time because we live in a small apartment complex, and I get self-conscious, and so sometimes I feel like me telling her to shut up will come off as like, naggy or I don't know whenever I'm in the moment and I think of it I'm just like oh this is just not going to sound right so I guess how do you get more comfortable with certain kinds of dirty talk like that you don't have to scream shut up at your girlfriend you can take her by the shoulders and you can say in a quiet and menacing and sexy theory tone honey darling shut 
and it'll be just as effective. I promise you. It'll be better. It's sexier than screaming. You don't want to have a dom-sub dynamic where you're yelling at each other. You want to be powerful and powerful person, as the saying goes, doesn't have to raise their voice. They force other people to listen. So go for quiet and menacing over screaming and yelling and you can have your dom sub dynamic and the thin walls in your apartment too. Hey Dan, I'm calling about an issue that's sort of been plaguing me since I was a teenager and it's insecurity about penis size. I am average, 100% average and I've never heard anybody complain I had one friend in high school who pointed out that it was small. I had uh, one lover who said that her ex-husband had been better endowed. But all of those things happened like 20-plus years ago, and I still can't get out from under it. All of my subsequent and current partners have not had any issue at all. One said it was nice sized, one said that it was girthy. But when anybody brings it up, when anybody even mentions, oh, look at that individual, or look at that picture, or look at that video, it gets me. And I'm just wondering if there's some way for me to get out from under that. It's a lot of conditioning, and it's a lot of, I guess, just self torture. So basically, nothing but compliments girthy, fine, love your dick for all of your adult life. Somebody 20 years ago said something disparaging about your dick, said it was small and you can't get over that. Dude, get the fuck over it already. Dick is great. Big dicks are great. Dicks can be too big. We had the author of Everybody Lies, Seth Stevens Davidowitz on the show a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that he, one of the big data things that he unpacks in, in his book is that a lot of searches around dick that women do is that what do you do when the dick's too big? So like a giant penis isn't necessarily your friend. A giant penis can be a curse and a burden. An average size dick works for everybody. And the person the dick is attached to is at least as important, if not more important, in most cases than just the dick all by itself. There are places you can go to have dick all by itself. There are places, there are truck stomps, there are sex clubs with holes in the wall where people pop their dick through and all they are is the dick. You don't go to those places. Most people don't go to those places. I don't go to those places. But those places exist where it's just the dick. But you're not just the dick. You're the dick and the person and the brain and the hands and the butt and the tits and the pits and the feet and the legs and the thoughts and the feelings and the impulses and the jokes and the sense of humor that that dick is attached to. You don't just bring that dick alone to a romantic relationship or a sexual encounter or a blowjob or PIV or whatever. You bring all of that. And you know what? A shitty personality shaves inches off a dick. An asshole, an inconsiderate, rude, selfish jerk shaves inches off a dick. A good, decent, great guy with an average dick who's good at oral and giving and considerate but also takes pleasure with their partner, it adds inches to the dick. No one is going to, after having great sex with somebody with an average dick, think, ah, it would have been better with a couple more inches. They're going to think, that was great sex. And great sex just isn't dick slamming in and out of something. Great sex is a lot more. 
And an average dick does just fine for most people. There are lots of women out there who would rather suck an average dick than some massive prick. There are a lot of women out there who an average dick is a more comfortable fit for PIV. And an average dick is less intimidating if you're doing butt stuff. Revel in your average dick. Embrace your average. It's the only dick you're ever going to have. So still obsessing about this one comment one person made a million years ago is a waste of time and emotional energy. I, I understand. I totally get it. One person says something rude about me on Twitter. It's all I see. There can be a hundred compliments for me on Twitter. And those don't matter because one person said something shitty. I understand. I have my own issues around one comment haunting me while all the other compliments are disregarded. But you've got to get over this. Your dick has gotten nothing but good reviews from the people you fucked over the last couple of decades. Stop obsessing. Yes, there are bigger dicks up there. Sometimes I think it would be really great if straight guys could just decide to be gay for a year or two and see dicks in all their different shapes and sizes. Have a lot of gay sex. If that was really how being gay worked, they could just choose it for a while. Because I think it would make straight guys more comfortable with their dicks if they saw all the different dicks out there and they saw that some big dicks are attached to lousy lovers and some little dicks are attached to great lovers. And it's not just about the dick. It's about everything else. You got everything else going on. Stop obsessing about the dick you've got and keep enjoying it. Hey Dan, I'm a pansexual man hoping to start a business working as a pro dom. I'm very much open about my sexuality with pretty much everyone and I kind of like it that way. I'm very classically masculine in both mannerisms and physique. I understand that's a big part of the job. People say I'm very straight acting, which makes me sick in my mouth a little bit, but you get the idea. Now, here's the thing. I've been told by a fellow mandom that it's best to market myself as straight, even though majority of paying clients are going to be men. So my two questions are, one, is this facilitating something of the unpleasant attitudes that exist in the gay community? Can I offset that? Is there anything I can do? And secondly, we all know that you personally are not put off by gayness in a man. But more importantly, do you really think I'll attract more customers if I pretend to be straight? Or do you think it's going to put more people off? I don't think there's any studies. I don't think anyone's marketed doms as straight and marketed doms as gay male doms for male clients and had a control group where they were marketed as whatever or nothing to see who gets more calls, who gets more bookings, who gets more clients. There's no definitive ruling that I can give you here. But you have at least one sample. You have your friend. It's a data point. I guess it's not a study who is a pro dom who tells you that you should market yourself as straight because that brings all the gay dogs to the yard. And maybe that's True, and maybe he would know better than I. And I don't think you have to feel guilty about that. You know, a, a pro dom creates a persona, and that's the persona that people want to interact with. It is a performance. And really, you know, for women I know who are pro doms, and even for some guys I've known who are pro doms, it becomes like your drag character. It has a different name, it wears a different kind of style of clothing. I know pro doms who talk about their pro dom persona as a separate person, the way some drag queens will talk about their drag persona as a, a different and separate person from themselves. When I'm of Helvetica bold, I do this and this and this. But when I'm me, I would never do that. 
and hear the same kind of lingo and rhetoric and bifurcation when my Dom friends talk about their Dom personas and that role, that there's this person I become and there's the person I am and there's maybe some overlap, but there's a real gulp. There's a real difference. So the fact that you're pansexual in real life, but traditionally masculine in appearance and demeanor, I see no problem with your Dom persona being a straight guy, especially because you're going into this to make money and to make people happy, to help them fulfill their fantasies. And yeah, there are a lot of guys out there who are turned on by the thought of being dominated or tied up or tortured by a straight guy because part of what turns them on, maybe that perceived tiny residual dollop of contempt because that might be part of it for those guys, part of what turns them on. Also, marketing yourself as a straight guy to other men gets you off the having sex with them hook. If you are a pro-dom, and in a lot of places, pro-domination work is legal because there's no sex, the guys booking you will know that sex isn't something that they can wheedle out of you or ask for because you're straight and it's not going to be sex. It's going to be BDSM play and no physical contact, no sex. You're never going to fuck them. You're never going to let them suck your dick. You're never going to suck bears. That's not going to happen. That's not on the table. All the BDSM stuff is on the table. And that would, you marketing yourself as straight, weed out of your client pile, your pool of potential clients, any guy who's looking for sex from the pro dom he hires and not just BDSM play. I guess I've talked all around your question. I haven't really answered it. Does marketing yourself as straight to submissive gay guys who might want to hire a pro dom reinforce unpleasant attitudes? Maybe, maybe in some cases it might. It depends on the sub who's booking you. If he's healthy and articulate and enjoys BDSM play and compartmentalizes this, I don't think he's going to be damaged by worshiping or serving a straight guy in this erotic context. It's a scene. It's play. It's fantasy. People who engage in BDSM play tend to be healthier and more well-adjusted than the average person who doesn't engage in BDSM play. It's not that BDSM play is magic. It's that people who thoughtfully are able to accept their desires and incorporate them into their life tend to be healthier and happier. It's not like just people with BDSM desires. These studies are people who actively engage in BDSM play and are part of their local BDSM communities. They tend to be happier and healthier. Hopefully those are the guys you will scoop up. And some gay guys are just into straight guys. And gay guys who are into BDSM, gay guys who are submissive, it may feel more demeaning, more degrading, and therefore more of a turn-on to serve you than to serve some guy who is, like them, gay. Hey, Dan. Late 20-something living in Chicago. I love having sex on my period. If I'm with a guy and he seems grossed out by this, it's a huge turn-off. Can I judge a guy for refusing to fuck me while I'm bleeding? Or am I being too judgy? You can kick a man to the curb for not fucking you when you're bleeding, for not fucking you during your period. If getting fucked during your period is something that you enjoy, if it's a requirement for the man you want to have a relationship with, the sooner you show guys who have a problem with the door, the sooner you're going to land on a guy who loves period sex just as much as you do. So you have my blessing to uh, reject anyone who doesn't want what you want, whatever it is. Hi, Dan. I have a question for you. I have explained to my uh, girlfriend, my domestic partner, that I'm unable to live a uh, monogamous, strictly monogamous life. I'm happy to do, and I think what fits me best is a monogamish. 
so we've come to an agreement where, okay, when I'm traveling out of town, I can hire a sex worker. I want to be equitable in our relationship. She's not interested in sexually being with anybody else. And so we're wondering what's a way that uh, we could make it equitable. I don't see how this isn't already equitable. You're getting what you want and your girlfriend is getting what she wants. You're doing what you would like to do and she's doing what she would like to do. You would like to have sex with other women at times and you get to and she would not like to have sex with other men and she doesn't have to to create some sort of false equity here. Unless your girlfriend has only consented to this arrangement under duress, unless your girlfriend is extremely upset by the fact that you are sometimes sleeping with escorts when you're out of town, there's no equity issue here. There's nothing really to worry about. You would like to have sex with other women. You have been granted an accommodation that allows you to have sex with other women in a way that presumably leaves your girlfriend feeling not all that insecure. Hiring a professional when you're out of town, that professional is not going to want to run off with you. They're not going to catch feelings for you and that therefore won't be a risk to the relationship. And because it only happens when you're out of town, it's not going to scandalize the neighbors, coworkers, mutual friends. So your girlfriend won't be humiliated. You guys have created a, an arrangement that allows you to be socially monogamous, perceived to be monogamous, even though technically you're kind of not. So the equity you should be aiming for here isn't equity around she gets to sleep with other people too if that's not something that she would like to do. I think the equity you should be looking at, the, the, the thing that is the, the key here is the accommodation that has been made. She has made an accommodation for you that allows you to be who you are sexually and to feel sexually fulfilled and have what you want in your life erotically. And you should tell her that if there is ever a circumstance or a time or an issue or a kink or anything where – an accommodation will be required of you, you will be willing and able uh, and anxious to make that accommodation for her in whatever form it ultimately takes. Some women's kinks only seem to surface later in life. Hence all those middle-aged women 10 years ago who are reading 50 shades of gray and suddenly realizing they wanted to experiment with BDSM. It could be that your girlfriend five years from now discovers that she would like to try X, let's say pegging. She would like to strap on a dildo and fuck some dude in the ass. You can accommodate that yourself if you are up for being fucked in the ass. If you are not up for being fucked in the ass, you can accommodate that new interest of hers by saying, get on Craigslist, get on FetLife. We can get on together. Let's find a guy who is into that and would be up for being pegged by you. And then you can equitably make the accommodation that allows her to be who she is sexually and to be fulfilled sexually in the same way she made an accommodation earlier on in the relationship that allowed you to be who you are and feel fulfilled sexually. So don't stress about this right now, that what seems inequitable. You are having the kind of sex that you would like to have, which includes sex with the girlfriend, sex with other women when you're out of town, escorts. She is having the kind of sex she would like to have, which is just sex with you at this time. Someday, and that day may never come, she may call upon you to make an accommodation for her. But until that day, accept the accommodation that she has made for you graciously and without too much hand-wringing. Hi, Dan. 29-year-old straight female calling from Florida. I just started seeing a guy and we've been having sex for two months. The sex is pretty great except he won't go down on me. He's a great catch in so many ways. He's intelligent, kind, genuine, but I'm afraid I won't stay interested in the long term if he can't do oral. 
This has never been a problem with past partners. What kind of things could be keeping him from going down on me? Do some just not enjoy it? And is it worth keeping around an all-around amazing guy, even though I might be sexually dissatisfied in the future? I have no idea what might be preventing him from going down on you. You know who knows what might be preventing him from going down on you? He does. It's been two months. If oral is something that you require, if the absence of oral is a deal breaker for you, if going without oral is a a price of admission, you are unwilling to pay to be with someone, however lovely they might be in every other respect, tell him that. Just fucking lay it on the table. Look, I really like you. You are a great guy. I have to have a boyfriend or long-term partner. It's fun right now. I'm willing to like hang out for a few more weeks, but if we're looking at something long term and that may seem like a conversation that at two months is premature, but I think you should fucking go for it. If we're thinking about anything long term, if this is something more than a summer fling, you're going to have to eat my pussy and you're going to have to eat my pussy like you like eating pussy. So I'd like to hear what the problem is. I'd like to hear why you don't eat pussy out with it and see what he says. Maybe he just thinks he's bad at it and feels insecure. Maybe he has issues with women's bodies, in which case runs screaming. Maybe he had some traumatic experience with oral sex once upon a time and he needs somebody to take him by the hand and walk him back into that garden. I don't know what his issue is. Only you have the power to find out what his issue is because you have him. Ask him. Use your words and tell him the truth. Tell him that this is potentially a deal breaker for you. You require oral. And if oral ain't happening, it's been a nice two months. Maybe we can enjoy another month or so this summer. But then it's over if oral doesn't happen. Hey, Dan. uh, Calling from a uh, big East Coast city about a friend of mine, a uh, 30-year-old straight male who just moved to a southern state with his girlfriend. He hasn't been dating very long. Guy used to be a boozer, smoker, partier, junk food eater, just all around bro guy. And ever since he's moved in with this girl, he has totally done a 180. He is getting his NBA. He no longer smokes weed. Um, He barely drinks. He's like eating like broccoli and salmon every night, which is fine, whatever. But the thing that bugs me the most is uh, she's no longer allowing him to watch anything with violence against women, which I understand on the surface sounds like a great idea, but this guy is a history buff, loves stuff like Game of Thrones, stuff set in like history type settings, uh, historical fiction, things. And, you know, a lot of that stuff includes violence against women, which I, you know, don't condone, but at the same time, it's like one of the most popular shows in the world. And I feel really bad for this guy that he's now no longer allowed to watch his entirely favorite show. Maybe he is watching Secret. I don't know. I'm trying to get some feedback. Is this a bad thing that she's doing or should everybody else who is against violence against women and uh, who considers themselves somewhat of a feminist, uh, should we get down with this? Should we boycott things like Game of Thrones? Or is uh, this woman cutting my man's manhood off uh, by not allowing him to watch just TV shows that he likes? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Amanda Marcotte, a journalist for Salon.com, also a feminist and a kick-ass presence on Twitter, and you should be following her. Hey, Amanda. Hey, thanks for having me. So you came on the show uh, earlier in the year, and together we talked about how problematic uh, 
Beauty and the Beast was, the live action film and the myth and the story. And single-handedly or dual-handedly, you and I together helped ensure that that was a worldwide bomb, that they barely made a cent, didn't recoup their investment. We drove Beauty and the Beast out of the theaters. Now let's set our sights on Game of Thrones. So should feminists boycott Game of Thrones? No. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I, I would be the biggest hypocrite in the world. I, I'm standing in my living room looking at a wall I have of, of paintings of Game of Thrones. I, I love it. <laughs> but there are a lot of feminists who argue that, you know, the way it shows sexual violence, you know, this guy is saying, but that's history. Well, Game of Thrones is not history. The Seven Kingdoms don't exist. Westeros is a made-up place. These are not actual continents, not actual kingdoms. And so, you know, this deployment of, you know, the use of uh, sexual violence in the show and, and the sexual objectification of women uh, for our entertainment, some feminists have argued, is deeply problematic. You know, it, it, it's an interesting show. I mean, I, I think that there are scenes on the show that really do cross the line. I mean, especially in the early seasons when it was clear that they had like a a mandatory breast per per episode, naked breast per episode um, minimum to make the produ- the executive producers happy mm-hmm. at HBO. Um, that was just plain objectification. But as far as the sexual violence there's a couple of times on the show where I think they portrayed it irresponsibly, but on the whole, I, I, I do argue with the notion that portraying equals endorsing. Mm-hmm. I mean, by and large, the show does try to portray violence against women as as part of a larger narrative about, you know, the evils of war. But there, I was just actually, I was momentarily distracted because I was thinking about, you know, all the grief they've gotten over the years of producers about, you know, the mandatory breast per episode and naked women. And we've seen uh, vulvas on the show or pubic mounds on the show. And last season, they, I think very self-consciously brandished an uncircumcised penis. And they were like, all right, there you go. There's a dick, everybody. Like it was centered in the shot for of a gratuitous three or four seconds. Did you see that episode with the theatrical troupe? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I laughed pretty hard when they did that. It, it couldn't have been more obvious that they were, sort of trolling the audience with that. So let's talk about uh, this guy's friend's relationship. So his friend, who is a big uh, boozer and pothead and ate a lot of junk food, met a new girl, and he's given up the weed, he's given up the booze, he's eating broccoli uh, and salmon and getting his MBA or whatever it was. Uh, So she's obviously had, I guess, a positive impact on this guy, but she no longer allows him to watch Game of Thrones, formerly his favorite show like it is your favorite show. Is that a reasonable thing for a feminist girlfriend to ask her boyfriend to do? No, absolutely not. I mean, I flinched at the word allow. Well, and he uses it multiple times. And I don't know if that's actually what's going on in his friend's relationship or if that's just how he perceives it. Mm-hmm. But if you're in a position where the words allow are kind of coming into what's supposed to be a relationship between adults, I feel that there's already a problem in your relationship. So, you know, um, if if you were dating somebody who watched violent pornography, if you were dating somebody who you watched Game of Thrones for the wrong reasons because they were looking forward to, say, the rape of Sansa episode. Um, would you break up with them? I mean, somebody who watches that kind of entertainment for the sexist or misogynistic 
violence, you know, that you're not going to cure them of that impulse. They're not going to become better men because you don't allow them to watch this thing. If they're watching it for the wrong reasons, they can stop watching it, but they still might want to watch it for the wrong reasons. The wrong reason, the, the, the bedrock wrong reason is still there, even if they stop consuming the media. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Like I, you would, I, I would hope that you know somebody well enough to, or know, understand these things well enough to know the difference between somebody who is watching it for the right reasons and somebody who is, yeah, like you said, just getting off on, I, I can't, yeah, I, I struggle to wrap my mind around getting off on the rape of Sansa on the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if for some reason that you just liked watching that poor girl get raped, well, yeah, I, I think I would, I would just break up with that person instead of get into this weird power struggle. But it doesn't sound like his friend liked the show for that reason. It sounds like his friend likes the show for the same reason most of us like the show, which is it's a a good, entertaining show and in in no way endorses rape or sexual violence. There's so much media. You know, I've had a problem. This is a, you know, this is an ancient reference, but Silence of the Lambs. I left halfway through the movie because I just couldn't take. Like, oh, women being tortured as entertainment is like the heart of this this film. And a lot of people really loved that movie. And there's so much entertainment and media out there that is, you know, woman in peril or woman in danger or Law and Order SVU over and over and over again. And so much of our entertainment is this stylized abuse of or or or, or rape of of women and women's bodies. How, how do you differentiate? How, how do you decide which is entertaining and which is problematic and isn't just the glut of it itself evidence of a problem you know i think sometimes yes i i feel like it's it's a very gray and ambiguous zone for me because i think you know there is no doubt that because of the sort of gender narratives that already exist in our culture we kind of get off um a little in certain unsavory ways on that on the other hand I mean, I, 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 this is a, is a very legitimately tough situation mm-hmm. because I, I think any individual product you can point to it and say, well, for me, that's over the line or it's not, but it, it's very, you very rarely are actually going to get media that is endorsing violence against women. It may be exploiting it. And I think sometimes Game of Thrones has crossed the line, but I, I don't think that you know, it's it's certainly not as cut and dry as saying, say, for instance, Beauty and the Beast is a sexist narrative. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And I think, you know, we should let people have the space to feel complications about this and, and have complicated emotions. And And honestly, what is art and narrative and fiction if it's not trying to sort of instill, ask more, have us ask more questions instead of give us pat answers? What would you say if you got on the phone with this guy's girlfriend, the girlfriend who's shoving broccoli and salmon down this guy's throat and not allowing him to watch Game of Thrones? If if she mentioned that to you in a bar, if she was a new acquaintance or, you know, a coworker and she said, "Well, I don't allow my boyfriend to watch Game of Thrones." Besides, you know, coming out to her as a Game of Thrones fan yourself, what would you say to her? I mean, I would try to usually just walk out away from somebody who says things like that. I don't allow my boyfriend to do just back away slowly. Like that's that's toxic on a level I can't even deal with. But if I was if I felt like under fire to have to say something to her, I would say, why not? You know, 
talk to him about what he likes about the show, you know, actually interrogate this instead of just have this black and white opinion about what it is and what it means. He, he may surprise you. He may actually be getting something out of it that is actually kind of interesting and profound that you haven't thought about. Amanda Marcotte, journalist for Salon.com. Terrific presence on Twitter. Follow her at Amanda Marcotte on Twitter. Thanks, Amanda, for coming on the show again. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, Dan. Um, I've known this guy for about 10 years, and we've hooked up on and off. And about six months ago, um, it got a bit more serious. I mean, you know, we started dating each other, actually, and fell in love. And it's been, it was really wonderful. Um, I discovered last week that he had lied to me about going to college and getting his master's degree. And, you know, over the course of our relationship had like mentioned what his thesis was and, you know, going to labs. And so I ended up breaking up with him um, just because I was concerned about the ease with which he lied to me. And, you know, I, I was really worried about what else he lied to me about. I had unprotected sex with this person. So my question is, um, I've had a lot of trouble letting go and I relapsed and saw him and slept with him last night. And I'm just really trying to figure out how to move on. And he's been very apologetic. Finally, when I initially confronted him, he said the reason that um, he, you know, the reason that I couldn't find his master's stuff was because he was doing top secret work for the government. But finally, he's kind of admitted to lying um, and apologized and seems really, really sorry um, and has assured me that he hasn't lied to me about anything else and that he wants me in his life. Um, and I just have this sneaking suspicion that there's a lot of other stuff he lied to me about, like little things, big things. And so I'm just wondering, like, how do I move on? Like, do, should I block him? You know, um, what do I do? <laughs> if you need to block him, unfriend him, unfollow him on Instagram and Twitter and everywhere else, to prevent yourself from re-relapsing and fucking this guy again, you should block, unfriend, and unfollow him. Because someone who gets caught lying to you about having a degree that they don't actually have, and their pivot from that lie is, I'm doing top secret work for the government, that person is bananas. That person is not someone that you can trust with your heart or your parts or anything else. That's not someone you should be having unprotected sex with. That's not someone you should be in a relationship with. And you say you've caught him in lots of other little lies. Now, most relationships involve a little lying here and there. It actually is kind of a lubricant that greases the wheels of a relationship. But there are permissible, understandable, excusable, small lies. But when those permissible, perhaps understandable, even excusable small lies exist in a context with huge and inexplicable and confounding and inexcusable lies, yeah, all of that adds up to I'm dating a pathological liar, not somebody that I can trust and you don't want to be with somebody who the rest of your life, anything that comes out of their mouth, you're going to have to wonder whether you're being told the truth or not. Wonder if you're being played or not. So block the motherfucker already. B-T-M-F-A. Hi, Dan. I'm a 52-year-old gay man in Salt Lake City. I'm a former Mormon. I was married to a woman and I'm also a father. Um, during our 18-year marriage, I did not act out on my homosexual side. Instead, I spiraled unhealthily. Um, I became very overweight and very sad. I was suicidal, but fortunately, 
Five years ago, I chose to live as my authentic self and kicked open wide the closet door to the surprise of everyone, including my wife, who did not know. My new life initially was very, very good. I became very healthy, lost 120 pounds. My entire life outlook of life was transformed. It was pretty amazing. Um, I went from a frumpy father to, I guess, what is considered a hot daddy, dating some pretty incredible guys. I can hardly believe this is my life. The problem I have is I'm unable to get off of guys. I enjoy a great sexual energy, have no problem getting erections and fucking. Um, I can easily jack off alone, but I cannot get off of guys. I had a boyfriend for a good while and was able to get off with him, but as that relationship deteriorated, I lost the ability to get off with anyone. Um, occasionally, I'm surprised with myself and get off, but as time goes by, it's becoming more and more rare. It just gets worse. So I guess I'm too much in my head, and I really don't know why. Uh, perhaps the religion, shame and guilt over the marriage, I really don't know. There's for sure a lot of baggage. I'm losing hope and just wondering if I'm ever going to be able to have a normal sexual uh, life or relationships. What do you think, Dan? So when you say you can't get off, I, I assume that you are able to get hard. If you couldn't get hard, you would have mentioned that. You're hard. You just can't climax? Exactly. And exactly. is it that you can't climax when the guy you're dating or the guy lucky enough to be dating the hot daddy, when that guy is <laughs> blowing you or you're boning his ass, uh, you just go and go and go and can't come. Is that right? Exactly. Right. In, yep. that, in the moment, though, are you able to finish yourself? Or even if you put your dick in your own hand and jack off, are you still unable to climax? I'm still unable. Completely blocked. Cannot get off at all in front of someone. So do you like hit these orgasmic plateaus and it just continues? It feels good, but you're just not rising to that, to that peak, to the, to the uh, moment of orgasmic inevitability, as they call it? Um, you know, I can edge. Edge mm -hmm. pretty good. I mean, it feels great. It feels amazing. I can edge and um, actually I can go for a long, long time. Um, they wear out and, <laughs> you know, and it gets frustrating because I just I can never – get off. It can never come. Okay. Well, that is a little odd. Maybe something you want to talk with a, a therapist about, but I have some, I have a practical recommendation for you. Uh, some practical advice. I, I know other people who have had this problem. I know women and men who've had this exact problem. And this is my go-to advice for someone in situation. I've heard from people and this is anecdote, not data. There's been no research, but I've heard from people who've taken this approach and it has helped. It's helped them. You can come when you masturbate. You can come when you're alone. Right, right. So masturbate in a house, you know, in your house, in your apartment with your partner. And you need somebody who's with you in this journey, who wants to, to help you and not just stand there with their arms folded over their chest being resentful about it. Uh, someone who understands that it's not about them because you've had this problem generally and with every guy you've been with and who, who is in, in to help you out. And, and not insecure or threatened. And you're going to masturbate while they're in the house, in another room watching TV, having nothing to do with you. But you know they're there. And then you're going to masturbate in that room 
when they're in the house without the TV on. So they might hear you. And then you're going to masturbate in that room with the door closed while they stand outside the door. And then you're going to masturbate in your room alone with the door open and without them, you know, standing in the doorway where you can see them. But you know that they're outside the door listening. And then you're going to put a blindfold on and you're going to masturbate while they're in the room, but being quiet. Then you're going to take the blindfold off and you're going to masturbate with them in the room with your eyes closed. And then after you've come and come and come and come, knowing that they're in the house watching TV, in the house not watching TV, in the house outside your bedroom door, in the house with the bedroom door open and and hearing you in the room, but you're blindfolded so you can't see them and they're being quiet so you can forget they're there, in the room with your eyes closed, you're going to masturbate with them in the room with your eyes open. Okay. And then okay. you're going to masturbate with them in the room <laughs> while they touch you, whatever the kind of touch is erotic for you cupping your balls, playing with your daddy tits, whatever helps, whatever turns you on. And in that moment, you have to feel free to, you know, block them out a little bit, to pretend they're not there while still enjoying the physical touch and the physical sensation and close your eyes and just go to fantasy land. And what you want to do is slowly acclimate yourself to coming with somebody else around, with somebody there and present. So instead of going for, I'm going to come in your ass if I just do this, 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 or come in your mouth if we just do this, this, and this, I'm going to come with you there, slowly, gradually. Your, your great big Mormon daddy dick is the proverbial frog in the frying pan, right? And you don't want it to leap out. So you want to slowly turn up the erotic temperature and, and bring this person in. But you need somebody who's not threatened or insecure. You need somebody who's mature enough to understand that, that, is, that this is a problem of yours and it's not about them, but they can be the hero here by helping you with this problem. I think that would work because the one time I was able to, well, but during that short relationship I had, that's almost exactly how the whole thing went down and how I was able to start getting off with him. And it may be something the relationship didn't last. Well, it may be something <laughs> where you need to tell people at the outset, look, this is how sex works for me. This is what's normal for me. The first few times that we mess around, I'm probably not going to be able to come. I'm going to get hard. You will see proof. You have the proof in your mouth. You have the proof up your ass that I am turned on by you and I'm attracted to you. I will be hard. But the first like half a dozen times I'm with somebody, I find it really difficult to climax. That'll come in time. I will come in time. Take the pressure off yourself and, and adjust their expectations accordingly so that they're not looking at you like, what, I can't make, I can't make you come? Don't let them wonder yeah. what the fuck is wrong or what's going on or if it's them. Get out in front of it. Say you're really hot. I really want to be with you. I really want to do X, Y, and Z with and to you, but you got to know. And then, they'll, then their minds will be at ease. Then they won't be like laying there wondering why it's not happening. They'll know it's not going to happen. And that's fine. And so sex those first six times, 10 times, 12 times is going to be about getting them off. And you tell them, you know what? I'm going to jack off about this later. I'm going to jack off about this later so hard. I will come because of you. But the first like half a dozen times, it's going to be before or after you got here. Mm -hmm. And you just have to okay. be upbeat about it. This isn't a problem. This isn't leukemia. This is you and your dick and how it works for you. It is so embarrassing, but I, I it's only embarrassing I because you because you because you. you believe it all. You, you you ought to be embarrassed by it. 
it, yeah, it's it's been an issue with relationships, you know, and what's wrong with me? Nothing's wrong with you, I, you when know. It's been and, a problem in the past with those guys. Did you talk to them about it in advance, or did you wait until you didn't come and then have an embarrassing conversation about what just happened? Uh, uh, both, both. You know, as as I've been out longer and become more confident, I'm I have been more, you know, I have set it up front that you know it's probably I'm probably not going to get off. Mm-hmm. If I spend more time with you, there's a better chance um, that we'll get there. And, and um, have guys reacted negatively to that? Yeah, well, no, no, they're not. They're always sweet. Uh, mm-hmm. Generally, they're sweet about it and, you know, uh, seemingly patient, but they don't stick around, you know. Uh, well, I've but had but that, may, say, well, that, may have, that may have nothing to do with the cum issue. You know, most people yeah. we date or hook up with for the first time don't stick around, even if you blow the most massive load in the world, if you practically drown them, right. they're still not going to stick around. Right. Right. So don't attribute, you know, not seeing that guy again to this problem. That just is that then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, this sounds simple enough. I think Give it a go. find a good, out. nice guy who wants to work on this with you and make this into a sexy game that you two are going to play together over the course of several weeks. I like it. I like it. All right. Have fun, hot Mormon daddy. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old bi female on the West Coast, um, but I'm actually calling about my mom. She has permission. She gave me permission to make this call, um, asked for it, actually. Um, she's afraid to call herself. But my mom has been in married to a new man um, for about a year, and um, he refuses to have sex with her. And so he had prostate cancer and he has to like shoot himself in the leg with the stuff in order to like get hard. However, at this point she's asked him over and over again, not just for like him to fuck her with his dick, but like him just to touch her, like touch her boobs or touch her vagina. And he just gets really mad. And like, he's even threatened divorce and like storms away. And, like, in every other aspect, she really loves him. Like, they get along. They have a fun relationship. So, like, they have a good companion at marriage. But um, he's not having sex with her. And, like, she's also financially dependent upon him at this point and, like, is concerned in that aspect. But I, I, she feels really guilty about seeking sex outside of the marriage. And I just I want her to feel better about it. Like, she does want to do it. And she's kind of losing her mind and super frustrated and... I feel sad for her and I just, I know you have really good advice and I've looked through episodes to try to find the ones about companionate marriage, but I've had trouble finding the specific ones. And yeah, if you could just speak to her situation would be awesome. I was on a panel recently in Ibiza of all places uh, with another couple of sex writers, Esther Perel and I were there and this other sex writer was up there and she said, she argued that there had to be sex in a relationship for that relationship to be healthy and functional, that no long-term relationship, no marriage could survive in the absence of sex. And I spoke up for companionate marriages, that there are people out there in long-term committed, successful relationships where there is no sex. And those relationships work and they are rewarding so long as it's what both people in that marriage want. A companionate marriage, absent some other form of sexual contact or sexual intimacy or sexual release for your mother is not something that she wants. It doesn't sound like something she could live with long-term. You say she's going out of her mind. I would be going out of my mind in your mother's shoes. The conversation your mother may need to have with her new husband of one year upon whom she is 
financially dependent after a year is this. Look, I love you. We have a great marriage. We have a great time together. We have intimacy of other forms, but we don't have sexual intimacy. I can't live for the rest of my life without sexual intimacy. So I am committed to you. I'm committed to this marriage. Sex is not a part of this marriage. If I find sex or stumble over sex outside of the marriage, I would like to be able to have it without being made to feel guilty about it because sex isn't something that you want from me. So what do you say? We're in a companionate marriage, but if and when the opportunity should present itself for me to have sex with somebody else, I may do that. Is that okay? It's not okay with her husband. If what he wants is a sexually exclusive marriage that's sexless, I'm always confused by people who want a monogamous commitment from someone that they don't have sex with. seems to me that sexless monogamy would mean I am the only person you don't have sex with. We don't have sex together. Therefore, you can have sex with other people without violating our monogamous sexless commitment. But if that's what he expects, and a lot of people who aren't interested in sex do demand that from their partner, I don't want sex, you don't get to have sex either because you were fool enough to marry me, then your mother may have to pull the plug on this marriage. Or if she really is after a year, what was she doing all the rest of her life before the last year when she somehow became financially dependent upon this man? If she can't get out of the marriage and she must stay, she can then do what people do in this circumstance. People who are trapped in sexless marriages that because they have dependents or children or there's just no way out where cheating is the least worst option for all involved, not just for the person cheating. Your mother should do what she needs to do to stay married and stay sane if that's what she needs to do. But then she has to pick up the CPOS label. She is going to be kind of on some level a cheating piece of shit. And that's fine. Cheating pieces of shit exist on a spectrum from – excusable, understandable, even permissible CPOSing to serial adulterers who destroy people, destroy their partners, destroy the people that they're cheating with who are just monsters. I don't think your mother's a monster. I don't think your mother, if she, because she's financially dependent on this man, which I'm sorry, is, is suspect to me. Perhaps this man has given your mother a, a new lifestyle that she couldn't afford on her own, but she was swinging it. She was doing something. She was getting along fine before this man came along 12 months ago and she could revert to her previous lifestyle if she can't stay in this marriage. But if your mother, for whatever reason, can't get out of this marriage and he won't agree to allow her to discreetly and considerately seek sex elsewhere, then there's only really only one other choice. One other choice your mother could make. Do what you need to do, mom, to stay married and stay sane. Hi, Dan. I am a 28-year-old uh, lesbian in the Bay Area, and uh, I am calling with a question about fisting. Uh, I'm in a great relationship. We've been together for about a year. We love each other. Sex life is great. And uh, vaginal fisting is in sort of the heavy rotation in our sex lives. Um, I don't fist her. My hands are too big, <laughs> but uh, she fists me. Um, and I'm I'm curious as to whether there are any potential side effects or downsides of having it uh, in rotation, say, twice a week. I We use lube. There's no pain, uh, things like that. But, you know, I, I wonder about things like stretching or any other potential side effects. From talking to my lesbian friends, I have gleaned that this is not super uh, common to be doing frequently, at least not in my friend circle. So I just wanted to see what you thought. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Sarah Prager, gynecologist at the University of Washington. Hey, Dr. Prager. Hi. So how much fisting is too much fisting? 
I think the real answer to that is going to be really an individual question. So it's obviously going to depend on what the participants in that activity are interested in. But if it's done safely and consensually, it should be fine. And with plenty of lube. (laughs) Right. Along with the safety would be uh, as much lube as possible and then add more, I think is probably the right call. And certainly some Things that would make it safer also would be making sure that whoever's fist is going inside a vagina has very clean hands, no ragged fingernails, no rings, nothing that could damage the vaginal sidewalls. No wristwatches, um, no bracelets. No wristwatches. Exactly. You know, nothing that that could potentially scratch the vagina. Some vaginal fisters make the mistake of thinking that since a a vagina, when a woman is aroused, self-lubricates, that that's going to be enough and that's not true. That is typically not going to be true because um, I guess I'm just going to back up for a second and say, I think sometimes the, what I've heard is, well, you know, if a, if a woman can give birth, a head is much bigger than a fist. And my answer to that would be sure. But typically that also doesn't happen without some damage to that, to that area, to that tissue. Mm -hmm. And the goal with fisting, which um, should be sexually pleasurable is to not cause any damage at all. And so even though the vagina can produce um, a significant amount of lubrication, that's variable across women and it's never wrong to add more lube. So, you know, when people talk about the, the, the side effects of fisting, what I hear them saying usually, and, and this is a lesbian couple, so maybe that's not their concern, but for heterosexual potential fisters out there by women who want to be fisted or, or experience it, what often they mean by side effects is how loose am I going to be if I fist regularly or fist at all ever? Is this going to result in me having, you know, a stretched out vaginal tract? Am I going to be super loose? Is that a potential side effect that people need to worry about? I would say that unless the fisting is being done aggressively with causing damage to the musculature of the pelvic floor, there shouldn't be any long-term damage to the area. It shouldn't cause what we call prolapse or, you know, loosening of that tissue. Um, Again, the vagina is a very elastic organ. It is designed to be able to stretch out and then tighten back up. Mm -hmm. Obviously that doesn't happen perfectly um, in all situations for all women. But again, if care is taken, um, the fister should always go very slowly. A hand shouldn't be just inserted without a lot of preparation in terms of arousal and lubrication and starting with one finger and then two and working up to a fist. Um, And also really going to depend based on the uh, recipient's um, comfort level. And we should emphasize uh, for people who may be dumb (laughs) that this isn't something you want to do (laughs) under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Either of you, the fister or the fistee, you want to be present, you want to be communicating and you want to be in touch with your nerve endings all over your body. Absolutely. And, and again, you know, consensual and, you know, consensual cannot happen when either of the participants has been using drugs or alcohol. So I absolutely agree with that. Well, I have to disagree. <laughs> Would you consider that so much of the sex that happens on any given Saturday night, people have had a couple of drinks or maybe they smoked a little pot 
Uh, I think there are definitely sex acts where sobriety is required, but I don't think sobriety is always required when we talk about consent. It's a gray area, though. It's like porn. You know it when you see it. Too drunk or too high or too fucked up to give your consent. We kind of know it when we see it, but so much of the sex that goes on out there on any given night, any given Saturday night particularly, are are people who've had a couple of drinks or people who've done a little something. Is all that sex? Yes. Assault? No, I agree with you. I think there is a an element of social lubrication that can still allow for actual consent to be given. Um, but that, like you say, it's it's probably on an individual basis. Yeah, which makes it a moving target and, and hard to have a hard and fast rule about. But definitely for something like fisting, vaginal fisting, anal fisting, all sorts of kind of varsity level kinks that inherently bring risk of, uh, of physical damage uh, or harm, potential harm, uh, you want to be fucking stone cold sober for that shit. I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. And I would also say, even if fisting is a regular part of your life, there are going to be situations in which that's not going to be a good idea. So if the recipient has a urinary tract infection or a yeast infection or something that has changed the normal milieu of their pelvic area, then um, it's probably a better idea to avoid that activity during that time, just like one would also avoid penetrative, you know, penile vaginal sex. Solid advice. Dr. Sarah Prager, gynecologist at the University of Washington. Thank you for jumping on the phone and helping us uh, tackle this question. Fist the shit out of it. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, Dan. I'm the tech savvy at risk I'm a 32-year-old heterosexual female and have been married to my husband for six years and we've been together for 11. Since the birth of our last child last year, I've been less interested in vaginal penetration because it hurts. So we've been trying some other things. My husband expressed an interest in ass play for him, so we've been playing around with that, using fingers and a dildo with graduated sizes, and it has been a lot of fun. We recently talked about pegging, which I am very interested in, and so is he. We looked at harness and dildo setups online, but every time we suggest we head over to the awesome woman-owned sex-positive toy shop in town to browse in person, he shuts down and says he's too scared and too ashamed. These must be some internalized feelings of fear and shame because I've said many times that I'm really excited to do this and would never shame him for it. And the people at the store have always been incredibly helpful and nice to both of us when we go in to buy lube or condoms or other vanilla stuff. Can you help me with some ideas or words to communicate to him that he needn't feel ashamed and that this could be really good for us? I'm assuming part of what makes this butt play that you're doing with the husband hot for you and for him is the transgression, is the inversion of expected sex or gender roles, right? You are fucking his ass. And I bet you, I guarantee you, part of what is sexy for him about that is eroticized shame, is the, the, the power exchange, is the inversion, is the transgression. And so uh, on the one hand, you can't benefit from the eroticization of these feelings of shame and submission and then ding your husband endlessly for actually having some residual feelings of shame around getting ass fucked by his wife. That's why he's fine marching into that woman-owned sex toy store to buy whatever else, but has this hang-up around marching into the sex toy store to broadcast to everyone in the room and all the clerks there that you guys are buying a strap-on dildo so you can fuck his ass. So I don't think he has anything to be ashamed of, but – 
there's something there. There's some little sand in the shell that becomes the pearl, this hot sexual activity that you both enjoy. But the sand, the irritation, the shame is still there. And it's kind of a paradox. You benefit from it because it makes your sex life fun and adventurous and it's created a new uh, avenue of sexual expression that you both enjoy after the birth of your uh, most recent child and vaginal intercourse is more painful for you, kind of off the menu for a while. And you are exploring penetrating him and it's sexy and it's hot because it's transgressive because it maybe sandpapers some particular nerves that he has. And, and he, that conflict, that push pull is part of what fuels all of this eroticism and, and, and excitement and joy. And so you're just going to have to say to your husband, I will go to the sex toy store and I will buy that strap-on dildo with or without you. Stop trying to drag him into the store. You can acknowledge that shame and unnecessary shame uh, are, are making it impossible for him to accompany you to the store. And he can take responsibility for it without having them to march into the store with you this time to buy this particular sex toy. Be the good and loving and understanding partner and accommodate his insecurities around buying this thing. And your husband's not the only one with this particular hang-up around buying this particular toy or other kinds of toys. There's a reason why every sex-positive woman-owned sex toy store has an online website. And it's because so many people are too embarrassed or ashamed. They want the sex toys, but they don't want to be seen going in and out of the sex toy store. And the store, by... Not requiring everyone who wants to shop there to show up in person and march in is accommodating all of these people. And, you know, some people are out of town or some people are busy or they're online shoppers exclusively. But they're also accommodating a lot of people who want the sex toy, don't want to be seen in the store. Your husband's one of those people. You say you've looked around online at potential strap-on dildo combo platters. Order one. You say you're comfortable going into the store, and so is he going into the store when you're buying other things. This particular thing, though, your husband feels conflicted about. You march into that store without him, and you buy it for him. That's the loving thing to do here. Not to drag your husband in there by the scruff of the neck. Not to shame your husband for feeling shame about this. Acknowledge that the shame exists there. Acknowledge that there's an upside to that shame too, acknowledge that that's part of what you're playing with erotically perhaps when you're penetrating your husband and playing with his ass and go buy the fucking strap on dildo already. Jesus. Hey Dan, 19 year old from the West coast here. I just have some problems with this girl I've been seeing for about two months. You know, we got more serious after about a month, started calling her my girlfriend. It just seems like whenever the rare occasion, when we do get to see each other, She's always sort of brushing it off until the last possible second. She's always seeming to come up with an excuse as to why we need to reschedule and push it back. She never really seems to find a way to etch out a time in her schedule for me. She always seems to have time for her friends. You know, she always seems to have time to do irrelevant uh, other shit outside of her busy schedule. And I'm just wondering why I'm not fitting in there except for the rare, maybe twice or once every two weeks occasion. I don't know. I feel like I'm her boyfriend. I should be seeing her more if we're going to make this thing uh, become more serious. Also, she seems to have problems with intimacy. She seems to be okay with cuddling one day and not the next. 
Uh, she never, she's never really communicate. Uh, she's never really communicating with me about it. And, uh, you know, I tell her, I tell her to tell me everything, everything she's thinking. And she says, of course, but she never really does. She never really, uh, she's never really honest with me about her problems with intimacy, except for the fact that she's never had an intimate partner before me, which I understand and I'm very patient with her. I never pressure her, but I just, I need some advice on how to maybe ease her into intimacy a little bit because I kind of need more of that connection, more of that romantic touch. I get no pleasure from what I'm about to say to you, but I feel honor bound to really lower the boom here. You're not her boyfriend. You've been serious for a month, dating for two months, serious for a month, and you only see her once every week, once every two weeks. To borrow a 90s catchphrase, she's just not that into you. She's not into this relationship. We can't know whether or not she fears intimacy, but we do know that she has no interest in being intimate with you. And just as the previous caller can't drag her husband against his will into a sex toy shop to buy a strap-on dildo, you can't force this person to get over what you assume to be her intimacy issues. And that's an assumption you make to protect your ego. And there's nothing wrong with those kinds of assumptions. We all make those kinds of assumptions all day long to protect our fragile egos. You can't drag her into a relationship with you. She's not interested in having a relationship with you. She doesn't actually have a relationship with you. She allows you to think you're her boyfriend, to call her your girlfriend for reasons. I don't know what those reasons are, but those reasons aren't that she's interested in actually being your girlfriend. If she was interested in being your girlfriend, you would see her more than once every two weeks over the last eight. She may be one of those women, young women particularly, often struggle with this, who don't know how to say no to a guy. Like all women, your girlfriend has been socialized to defer to men and not perhaps say no to men, not be honest with men, to protect a man's fragile ego. And so she is deferring to you and not saying no to you and allowing you to think she feels for you in ways that she doesn't to protect your ego. And as is always the case, it's making it worse, making it more painful for you. A straight answer from her, she's not interested, not your girlfriend, this is over, will be momentarily painful, but this long drawn out rejection this fadeaway that she's attempting in the aggregate, in the long run, altogether, that's going to be more painful for you than the dump. You got to break up with her. If she doesn't have the courage to break up with you, what she's clear, the message she's sending you with her actions, not her words, is I am not interested. And for reasons that may come down to socialization or thoughtlessness or inconsideration, she's just not being straight with you. She's not telling you. So you're going to have to do the heavy lifting here. You're going to have to break up with her. It's going to be easy. Just don't call or text her for a while and you won't hear from her and it will end. So I'm sorry, you're 19 years old. This happens. You will have other girlfriends, other relationships going forward. People will make themselves available to you for intimacy, but she is not your girlfriend and she is not making herself available to you for intimacy of any sort. And you need to, Dump the motherfucker already. You know, technically to dump someone, you have to be with someone and you're not actually with this person except once every couple of weeks and then there's no intimacy, there's no touch, there's no nothing. So I'm telling you to dump someone that you're technically in some sense not with, but you need to you need to dump this motherfucker because this is not a relationship. She is not your girlfriend. You are not her boyfriend. Go find someone else. Go find someone who wants to be with you and will make time for you. That's how you know someone wants to be your girlfriend.
They spend time with you. They make time for you. She is telling you through her actions that she does not want to be your girlfriend and actually isn't your girlfriend. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 26-year-old woman of color living in the South, and I guess my question is about friendships and the longevity of friendships and, and when to outgrow them. Just for some context, I have this friend group um, that I've known for about 10 to 15 years. We got together in like middle school, high school. We just kind of like found each other and we become this really close-knit, tight, affectionate group. People are actually super annoyed. We're like that obnoxious group at a bar that's just constantly telling each other, "We lo- I love you, man. Like, we're pretty obnoxious. And also for my best friend, who is who's married, she's been married for about five years, um, she's kind of hooking up with guys within the group. Um, Not one specific guy, but multiple guys within the group. She has an ongoing sexual relationship with them. They don't know about each other. Uh, Well, they don't know that she's having sex with each individual guy. They all think they have a very specific sexual relationship with her, which is not the case. The problem is my reaction to the friend groups and in the underlying context of me knowing that she's having these sexual relationships with all the guys plus her marriage and then having to maintain that lie during the hangout. Like, I don't know. And we're all just friends here on some level. I have an allergic reaction to that immediately after we can have the greatest time. We can feel nostalgic and just love each other. And then when we leave the group, I need to feel validated. I need to be seen as a woman because they see me as the kid's sister. And so what that looks like is I will end up going to find random dudes from the internet to go hook up with. Like, I need someone to see me. I need someone to validate me, someone to see me as a sexual being. And so I will go find some dude to blow, or I'll go find some guy to hook up with in the bathroom. And and, and while that's all great and I'm, like, pretty sex positive, it makes me feel bad because I know the reasons that I'm doing it. So my question is, is this a sign that I've outgrown the friendships? Is this something I need to talk about with her? Should I just stop hanging out with them since they have like such a volatile reaction to the hangouts? I don't know, Dan. Can you just give me some insight on like what the next move should be? Because it's like clockwork every single hangout. I think I'm doing fine, but really I'll have like this mental breakdown where I need to go fuck a stranger. Uh, help me. If every time you hang out with this group of friends, which sounds like your female friend and her male harem that we're talking about here, if every time you hang out with them, you wind up blowing a stranger in a bathroom or fucking some dude off the internet randomly, and you feel bad about blowing a stranger in a bathroom or fucking some dude randomly, then don't hang out with your friend and this harem. You can hang out with your friend solo, just the two of you. You can see other people in the friend group socially uh, in smaller chunks, but if If this is the reaction that you have, every time I hang out with these people, I do this and I don't want to do this. Well, the solution is obvious. Don't hang out with these people. I'm curious though and I want to challenge you on the idea that the only reason you're blowing dudes in bathrooms and hooking up with strangers on the internet is in reaction to your friend and the feelings that you struggle with after hanging out with her and her harem. It's a fine thing to blow a stranger in a bathroom. It's a fine thing to hook up with somebody from the internet. Lots of people are online doing it. Lots of people are blowing people they just met. Lots of people are eating pussy. They just met. Lots of people are hooking up with people they met on Tinder and Grinder and Recon and everywhere else on any given weekend. And I want you to be sure that you aren't using your friend as an excuse, that you say you're sex positive. But if there's some residual, unacknowledged sex negativity in you where there's a certain kind of sex that you enjoy, random, anonymous, impulsive, uh, these kinds of hookups – 
And rather than take responsibility for this, these choices that you're making, you're assigning responsibility, you're assigning blame to this group dynamic, to your friend and how she makes you feel. It's their fault, not something that you're choosing to do. And whenever in your life you are engaged in some sort of sexual activity or sexual pursuit or sexual fun or pastime and you feel this need to look around and find a cause for it beyond just this is what gives me pleasure, you have to, as the college kids say, interrogate that. It may be that you're acting out sexually in a compulsive and and unhealthy way, in a, a destructive way, and you need to root that out. We want to make choices uh, around sex that are affirming and make us happy and make our lives richer and more rewarding. But if you look at the sex you're having and the choices you're making and you enjoy the sex you're having and you instantly pivot to who's to blame, where am I going to point a finger rather than take responsibility for this, rather than these being the choices that I want to make. Uh, I enjoyed the sex, but I wouldn't have done it if it weren't for my friend rubbing it in my face again that every male in our extended friendship group is her sex life. But where you go is, oh, I did this thing that I enjoyed. I blew a stranger in the bathroom. It made me feel sexy. Or I had a, a hookup with a random from Twitter, and it made me feel sexy and alive, and I really enjoyed it. And now that I'm home, I have to point a finger. I have to assign blame. I have to absolve myself of responsibility for what I just chose to do. That, to me, screams sex negativity. That to me screams, I don't feel that the choices I'm making are valid because I'm making choices around sex or around a kind of sex that a lot of people would sneer at or disapprove of, rando, quasi-anonymous, insta-hookups. And so I'm going to point a finger at someone else rather than look inside and figure out why I am doing this. But hey, if it's really in reaction, if you really interrogated this and it's absolutely some reaction you have to hanging out with these people, hang out with them less or hang out with your good female friend alone. Don't see her with her harem. And if you have a problem with the fact that she's cheating on her husband and she's playing all these guys, you should say that to her. Might end the friendship, but perhaps this is a friendship that's run its course. Hi, this is a comment for the guy on episode 559, the college student who couldn't get laid. Dan, I think you've got it wrong. Um, And I feel so strongly I'm calling all the way from Australia to tell you this guy doesn't like women. He doesn't like women. He's not getting laid because they can tell he doesn't like them. All he sees them as is, is a potential receptacle for his penis. He's not relating to them. He's not connecting with them. He's not feeling any sort of kinship with them. He doesn't even see them as human beings. He sees them as potential fuck partners and they can tell which is why they're not interested. And what he needs to do is stop chasing women to get laid and maybe start getting to know women as human beings and making a couple of friends and maybe reading some feminist literature and go work in a women's shelter or something and just start seeing females as human beings and that might change his luck. Hi, Dan. I'm just calling in response to the caller who was really frustrated about not getting girls uh, to stay him in university. Uh, I just want to say that I'm a girl in university, and I just want him to know that it's okay. In one season, as in when the holiday season, I asked four people out, and they all turned me down. And it kind of sucked in the moment, I'm not going to lie, but I'm still friends with most of them today, uh, so it's okay. And I completely agree with Dan's advice. I think... If you're looking to date someone, it's a lot easier 
to just ask them pretty soon in the relationship when you get to know them well enough to feel comfortable to do so. Um, it's just going to save your feelings later on. You won't feel as invested in the relationship. And if they turn you down and you're just, you don't want to be friends with them, it's a lot easier to move on as opposed to getting to know them, feeling comfortable around them, and then asking them out. But it's also, sometimes that just happens. Sometimes you just have really bad luck with girls or guys or whomever. So um, I don't want you to feel bad because it totally happened to me. I'm not mad at it. It's a thing that happened. Now it's kind of funny. So you'll have better luck another time. So good luck. Hey, Dan, this is in response to episode 559, the guy who sounded extremely sweet, uh, but having a difficult time connecting with women. You know, I'm a gay male and I have the exact same challenge. I'm a good looking guy. I have my act together, you know, all that good stuff. But I'll say this, a lot of the women that I deal with that are straight, they deal with so much shit from guys. So I think your advice as far as women are maybe guarded because men could be potentially violent or complete assholes. It's probably part of the challenge. And also, he sounded maybe potentially a little needy, and no one wants a needy guy, especially in a man. So sit back, relax. Maybe it's not your time to be in a relationship, you know? Then that's perfectly okay. Anyway, I deal with the same stuff. Hi, Dan. I'm calling to thank you for having Buck Angel on the show. I'm a therapist in a large liberal city, and I've been working with LGBT teens and young adults for about a decade. I'm also part of the queer community. Many of them are the kind of Twitter, Tumblr dwellers you were so accurately critiquing, and I wanted to offer a psychological take on the current state of queer activism. Three themes that I've noticed are, um, one, many of them are young, isolated, and frankly don't have much going on in their lives beyond their online existence. Two, um, after much thought, I personally have concluded that the feeling of moral superiority is an intoxicant and can affect anyone. I imagine a liberal version of Saturday Night Live's church lady doing her little I'm feeling superior to you dance. I think they're straight up getting high on feeling self-righteous. Number three, there's also a liberal version of the lift my luggage guy, and we call that reaction formation in therapy land. The louder someone screams about social justice, the more I start wondering what kind of guilt and shame of their own they're trying to hide. Those themes and more are why I'm so grateful to you and Buck Angel for speaking out about this unfortunate current trend. Many of my queer clients privately tell me how sick of it they are, but they just choose to opt out of the community rather than risk the wrath of the progressive Puritans. And that's furthering the problem because then it just makes it seem like the bullies really do represent the community. When from what I've seen, they're probably most likely a depressed and angry young person sitting in a dark room trying to find an outlet for all those awful feelings, which sucks. I really think they need Trampa Buck to take them on his knee and do for them what he did for you 22 years ago when you made an uninformed reactionary statement about him. Thank you so much for listening and keep up the good work. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Amanda Marcotte on Twitter at Amanda Marcotte. And be sure to read my column, Savage Love, every week in Now, in Toronto, and other papers all across North America and in Italy even. 
The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thanks for downloading. <laughs> <laughs>